Thank you, Autumn. Beautiful, as always. Folks, if you would please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Very familiar passage. We see it all the time on Christmas Day. This passage is titled, The Humility of Christ. I don't even know if it's possible to accurately represent the eternal creator of the universe stepping away from his throne to redeem mankind with his blood. But for a moment, just imagine with me for a moment, you're sitting at home in a chair and you look down from your chair and you see an ant. It's crawling across the floor. If you're like me, the first thing that you would think of is, how can I execute that thing, right? How can I get rid of that ant? One ant usually means there's a whole lot more ants where that one came from. That one's probably a scout of some kind looking for a source of nutrition for the nest. And that single ant could represent a colony of tens of thousands of ants. I understand in a severe infestation it could be millions or more. So our first response would probably be, how to eliminate that ant? In fact, we who live in Florida realize and recognize that you can't just eliminate that ant. Because if you just spray that ant dead, the only thing it's going to do is soothe our emotions for a moment. But in reality, it does nothing to the nest. What we have to do is we have to bait that ant, and he needs to go back and take that toxic substance to all of his friends. And the battle is very real. But we kill ants. Because they really don't mean anything to us. Their significance is so far below us in value. We can exist just fine without ants. We aren't really reliant upon ants for our happiness, fulfillment, or purpose in life. Really, they're just pestilence, aren't they? None of us here would consider sparing the ants for the sake of the ants, they're so, they're so far below mankind, yet surely we'd, we'd, we'd never consider becoming an ant in order to go and save other ants. We wouldn't even ponder such a thing. We also know that the infinite creator of the universe has existed from before time. And he existed as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God has never known loneliness. He's never been alone. Uh, Acts 17 verse 25 reminds us He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything. But for His eternal glory, for His sovereign purpose, God chose to create the whole world and the universe. And in Genesis Chapter 1, verse 27, he created man. Man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And there's a whole lesson, a whole series of lessons that could be given on the image of God and how we reflect his character, his attributes, his personality, his love, and how we're a reflection of his image. There's, there could be a whole series of sermons given on, on the fall and how we rebelled and, and how it separated us from God. But we also have to acknowledge that 
before we even rebelled, before there was even a creation, God knew full well what was going to happen. He knew man was going to fall in the garden, that, that man would rebel, fall into sin, thus separating himself and herself and all of us from God. Nothing concerning the fall caught God off guard. You don't hear that a lot today. Uh, yet in Isaiah 14, verse 24, we are told, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. God's never caught off guard. He's never caught by surprise. Uh, he knows everything. He's omniscient. He knows the beginning from the end. He's represented in Revelation 22, verse 13, as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So, so the future is in God's hands. Thankfully, we know how it all ends because God has determined how time will end and He has shown us in Scripture how it's going to end. God's not constrained by time. He created time. It is an invention of His. We're confined by time. God is not. And this is why, although God has existed for eternity, the book of Genesis opens by saying, in the beginning. Well, in the beginning of what? In the beginning of time, as God created it. God is in control of time. He created time. Shortly after the church was born, the apostle Peter and John uh, were threatened by the chief priests. You remember they were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't do that anymore. They said we must obey God. And then they returned uh, to their Christian brethren. And Acts 4 verse 24 tells us, They lifted their voices to God with one accord, all the brethren. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Also in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter is explaining to the people the reason for the, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and the miracles that they were seeing. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter is preaching to them saying, Men of Israel... Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, the Christ, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Scripture is clear that the events of the crucifixion, the death of Christ, were predestined to occur in a predetermined plan by God. 
And when referencing God's plan of redemption, the cross, Christ's substitution on our behalf, the Bible never represents that, the crucifixion, as some kind of stopgap measure that God came up with after the fact of the fall. Through the cross, God, he isn't fixing a situation that somehow flew out of control. And he's trying to patch it up. It was all a plan from the beginning. His, his plan was that there would be a people who would be redeemed. 1 Peter 1.19, with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he, the Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ's role as the Son of God who would become the Lamb of God was predetermined before the foundation of the world. That, was, that is before even creation. Those of us who are in Christ, familiar passage, Ephesians 1.4, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of God's will. In Matthew 25, verse 34, this is a uh, scene of the final judgment. We're given by Jesus a picture of the Son of Man. He's sitting on his throne, and he's separating the sheep from the goats, while saying to his sheep, Come you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. According to both Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, even our names are already written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And the reason I, I cite all these references is just to reemphasize to us something we, we, we lose sight of from time to time. God's plan of redemption from sin, it isn't in reaction to what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they sinned. God wasn't caught by surprise when that happened. The cross isn't a plan B to patch up the problems. The incarnation of Christ, the birth of Christ, God becoming man, the cross, His crucifixion, our redemption from sin is plan A. From the beginning... Before the foundation of the world, God had this planned. It was a, it's a predetermined uh, intra-Trinitarian plan, if you like. It was a plan between Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What was the plan? The plan was, from the beginning, the Son of God would set aside all of His privileges as God. All that he deserved rightly as God. And he would empty himself. He would, in a sense, lower himself to become an ant. To save ants. And, and this illustration probably comes across pretty extreme. I understand that. You know, comparing men to ants may be extreme. Because we live in a culture that, that just exalts man. Lifts man up to the level of deity. We make an idol out of man. We, we scream praises to man. We sing songs about man. 
We direct our adoration or our worship towards man and woman. In our depraved, idolatrous culture, pick the venue, man or woman. Pick the type of entertainment, the music, the style, the theater, whatever it is. We elevate man to God's status. Man becomes a God in our eyes. Doesn't matter what his or her name is, what TV channel they're on. Man becomes a God in our culture. In the Bible, it's very much the opposite. God becomes a man. I think of an Acts when, when uh, the Jews were complaining about Paul and the apostles and, 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 and they're preaching the gospel and they're complaining because these men were turning the whole world upside down, we're told. That's a good thing. Because our world is upside down and you turn it upside down, now it's right side up. It's also important, as we think about the incarnation, about the birth of Christ, Christ never became less than God. You'll hear that suggested uh, by some groups. That's completely inaccurate. There's never been a moment in time where Jesus Christ was not fully God. For we know from Colossians 2 verse 9 that in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Christ has always been God. At the Incarnation, the Son of God didn't lay aside or empty Himself of His deity. That's not what it's talking about in in Philippians chapter 2. What God the Son did was He laid aside and He emptied Himself of all the privileges of a God while submitting Himself to the will of the Father. You see that throughout Scripture. Not my will, but Thy will be done. And in doing so, Christ, he stepped away from his throne, becoming flesh, dwelling amongst ants. He didn't need to do it. He didn't need us. God doesn't need anything. God's fully self-sufficient, not dependent on any man. The triune Godhead existed for eternity before time even began just fine without any of us. So why did God do it? Why is there a creation? Why is there man? Why are we here? You hear that, that echoed all the time. People, people are just lost and they can't figure out why they're here. Why was I born? Why, why, what am I supposed to do? Why did God do it? Well, we know as Christians, there's, there's only one answer to that. God did it for His glory. God did it for His glory. And I'm going to return to that theme in just a moment. But uh, follow along as I read our text from Luke's, Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Luke writes, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family of David. 
in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger. Because there was no room for him in the inn. You know, it doesn't take a genius to recognize. You know, Luke is going to great lengths here to ensure his narrative is understood about the birth of the Christ and what happened. He's being very intentional. This isn't a once in a once upon a time story. The historicity of Luke's writing is very intentional. And if we look back to chapter 1 and verse 3, we'll see that we'll be reminded by Luke's introduction that he's writing to a specific person. That man is named Theophilus. And this Theophilus, he was esteemed by Luke with the title, Most Excellent Theophilus. In chapter 1, verse 3, you and I are given a strong indication that Theophilus was some kind of high-level Roman official. We talked about that several weeks ago. He was probably a governor, possibly of a significant territory. And we also learn in chapter 1, verse 4, that Luke is writing to Theophilus so that he may know the exact truth about the things that he had been taught. So being a historian type... Luke introduces the birth of Jesus now in chapter 2 with using a chronological marker. And while Theophilus, he, he, him being a Roman official, he, he would most assuredly have been educated in, in civics, in, in the history of Rome and Judea, and Roman rule. He, he would have known or at least had records that were accessible concerning the decrees of Caesar. Those that called for a census, those that called for uh, numbering the people for the basis of taxes and, and military service. And if you've read some Roman history yourself, you probably realize that Caesar Augustus was previously Octavius, right? And Octavius, he, he ascended to political dominance in Rome in 31 BC by defeating Antony and Cleopatra in a great ship battle, right? And it's called the Battle of Actium. And not long after that, and just two years later in 29 BC, Octavius then becomes Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. And I say all this just so that we will simply recognize that Theophilus would have been well acquainted with the identities of Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, the governor. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, this Quirinius was responsible for administering uh, just one such census in Palestine that really resulted in a violent revolt from the Jews. Quirinius had to suppress it militarily. We know that there are multiple censuses. There's also archaeological evidence that this Quirinius served as governor multiple times. So, so we don't know the exact year of Jesus' birth. Not precisely. It's difficult for us to pinpoint. That wouldn't have been a problem, though, for Theophilus. 
Theophilus would have known with exactness these events that Luke is talking about. The fact that Luke is talking about the first census called for uh, by decree uh, of Caesar. Theophilus would say, I I know what you're talking about. I've read about that. This type of documentation would have supplied uh, great evidence and, and credibility to Luke's research by reinforcing to Theophilus that all these events with the birth of Christ in Bethlehem are historical. They happened in a place and in a time. It's historical fact, Theophilus. It isn't fiction. It isn't a play story. It isn't a nursery rhyme. This is fact. And in verse 3, every male was required by the rules of the census to return to his home city to register. Theophilus would say, yeah, yeah, I know. That's typical of Caesar and of census. So, So Joseph... Uh, traveled to Bethlehem, we are told, because he originated from the tribe of, tribe of Judah and of the family of King David. He also took Mary with him. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth to Christ. While they were there for a census. And, and here we observe how God orchestrates and, and, and divinely causes or uses a decree from Caesar, a secular ruler, to achieve God's sovereign plan, to fulfill history. Was Caesar's decree a legitimate decree from Caesar? Yes. Certainly it was. Is Caesar, was Caesar morally culpable for his decrees, whichever they were, whether they were good or whether they were bad? Certainly he was. But was God ultimately in control? Absolutely. Absolutely. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. God turns it wherever he wishes. Even if he needs a decree that will make Joseph have to return to the hometown of Bethlehem so the baby can be born there. People ask from time to time, to what extent... Does God use this sovereign power to manipulate the decisions of a king or of a ruler of of us? I don't know. I have no idea. But Scripture is clear. God does so to whatever extent is necessary to achieve His sovereign purpose and His predetermined plan, which which according to Job Job 42.2, will not be thwarted, ever. God is in control. And and what we do know of Caesar's decree is that it fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Micah 5, verse 2 now. This is written 700 years or more before Christ. Micah writes, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Speaking of Christ. Therefore God will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren, meaning God's brethren, the Lord's brethren, will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. 
in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Speaking of Christ. This this is all the Christmas story. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God with us. And and we'll we'll commemorate that again in just a little over six months. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the birth of Christ today other than to point out what we, we talked about last week. That this is, this is all in fulfillment of what was recorded in the Old Testament. The New Testament is the f- fulfillment and, and incomplete harmony of everything that was spoken of the prophets from long ago. I, I try to imagine this week the Apostle Paul. You remember that he was an expert in the law. He was a Pharisee trained by uh, Gamaliel, I believe is how you pronounce that Pharisee. He was trained uh, under the best circumstances. He was an expert in the law and in the prophets. Few knew scripture, the Old Testament as well, as Paul, the apostle. And then once Christ opened his heart on the road to Damascus, opened his eyes to see that, that Jesus was the Christ, You can imagine, Paul must have had a field day preaching from the Old Testament with all of the prophecies that were fulfilled. I can't imagine what it would be like to to be next to someone who is that familiar with the Old Testament preaching Christ from them, from those scriptures. The the allusions and the illustrations in the tabernacle. And the temple sacrifices, which we know from Colossians, were a shadow of the things that would be fulfilled in Christ. And I can just see the Apostle Paul uh, preaching Jonah. How that was a picture of Christ, and, and how there were three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and then Jonah was spit back out onto dry land, a prophet of the Lord, going to Gentiles. And then two years ago, we were studying Ruth, if you were here, and, and how Ruth, this Gentile Moabite, makes her way into Israel, and there, there's a man there named Boaz, and Boaz lives where? In Bethlehem. And he's a landowner, and he's a gracious landowner, an upright man who was an ancestor of King David. And he extends grace to the Gentile Moabite. Just imagine how, you can, how many times you can illustrate Christ from the Old Testament. You know, he told the Pharisees, you, think, you study the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, he didn't say they didn't have eternal life in the Scripture, but he said, these are the Scriptures that preach, teach about me. All the Old Testament is about Christ. We're told that um, he would be born in Bethlehem, the Christ. The pro- because of the prophet Micah, who we just read, um, when King Herod was seeking out for his chief priests where the Christ would be born, in unison, they were all in harmony. They said, oh, it will be in Bethlehem. It will be in Bethlehem. That's in Matthew chapter 2. And the birth of Christ would be in the smallest of towns, the least of the clans of the tribe of Judah, we're told. 
Mike even says it's too little to be considered of the tribe of Judah. It's just emphasizing how small it was. It was of the tribe of Judah. But Bethlehem, Bethlehem is where he, the creator of the universe, the one who created it all, the one through whom John 1.3 tells us all things came into being and apart from him, meaning the Christ, nothing came into being that has come into being. The same Christ who according to Colossians 1.16 is the image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Everything was created through him and for him. The eternal Son of God, the, the agent of creation, the one who did the creative act, now enters in Luke chapter 2 into his creation, basically to save ants. And he did so through the most humble of means. By sovereign decree and a predetermined plan, he empties himself. And by the power of himself, by the Holy Spirit, he was conceived to be born one of us. Likely due to the number of people traveling for this census. The inn was full. There's only one place for this child. It is in (laughs) an animal feeding trough. I'm going to share with you what songwriters Mark Martell and Jason Germain write about him. Follow the star to a place unexpected. Would you believe, after all we've projected, a child in a manger... Lowly and small, the weakest of all, unlikeliest hero, wrapped in his mother's shawl, just a child. Is this who we've waited for? How many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts To romance a world that is torn all apart. And how many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. And he did it for you. Why did Jesus do that for you? Do that for me? The answer is, it was all planned from eternity past, before the foundation of the world. There was never a point in God's mind as he, as he measured out the heavens of creation when he didn't have in his mind, in his heart, a predetermined plan that he was going to save and redeem that creation. In fact, salvation is the very reason for creation. The glorification of Jesus Christ as God and Redeemer lifted up high is the purpose of creation. That's why we are here. 
the reason that God made man in his image is so that God the Son could come in man's image and redeem us. Save us. The entire time God was stretching out his line measuring the heavens, the purpose in his heart would be that it would all bring glory to his Son. And I can only imagine this surmising what happened in the garden. People say, why did God allow Adam and Eve to sin? Very simple. Very simple in my regard. You might disagree with me. As God permitted, allowed, permitted, Satan to tempt Eve and then Adam. And as Adam took the fruit from her and they ate, and as they both fell into sin, God was in some manner nearby, reflecting to himself how all of this is going to bring glory to my son. My son who is going to go be born in an animal trough and save them. And those of us who who know Christ as Savior, we worship Him because He humbled Himself. He emptied Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to save us. And we sometimes mistakenly think this whole work of creation is about us. But it's not primarily about us. That's a very man-centered theology that, that God, this celestial you know, waiter, is kind of taking care of everything for us. He loves to serve us. That isn't the purpose of creation. The, the world isn't that important because God's going to melt it down with intense heat and burn it up and recreate it. So it's not all about the creation. It's all about Christ. God created the world and and we who are in it, the live souls that are in it, from the beginning so that He could redeem us through His blood on the cross so that we can worship Him throughout eternity. Had there been no fall, there had been no need for a bloody cross, Jesus would have never been exalted throughout eternity as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But due to the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God, Acts 2.23, Jesus was nailed to a cross by godless men who put him to death, but God raised him up again. And people will say, you mean that the cross, it wasn't an afterthought of God? That in the garden things just kind of got out of control and then he had to hatch a plan to fix things? By the sovereign will of God, the cross was the whole purpose of creation even before the foundation of the world. Why? Because God loves us. He is love. And He needed to find a way to demonstrate to us and illustrate to us what love is. He needed to show us in the riches of His grace, in His love, in a tangible way, what love is, so we can observe that and go and do likewise. Philippians 2.3, as we read earlier, 
So I ask you to pay attention how this applies to us. Paul writes, do nothing from selfish, selfish, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. God never did that. But also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, so that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You know, it's probably dawned on you as we're talking about this that we're not ants, right? That illustration breaks down somewhere. It breaks down because ants aren't created in our image. So we kill them dead. That's what we do. But man has enormous inherent value because unlike that animal kingdom, we are created in God's image, in His likeness from the beginning. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living soul. Man became a living soul that will spend eternity somewhere. That's what separates us from the animal kingdom. The image of God, the eternal soul, is something that, that no animal can boast of. It's why, why we're never told by God to be concerned about the eternal destiny of animals. Though I know many today are. We're not told to be concerned about the salvation of animals nor their eternal destiny. We're told over and over and over again to be concerned about the salvation of men. And the inherent dignity of man, it's so clearly manifest through the fact that God Himself humbled Himself and became a man in Bethlehem, in order to save us. And every single soul, saved or unsaved, will look upon Christ and see the nail-scarred hands and will bow down and confess that He is Lord. I suggest doing it sooner than later. And if you were here last week, I briefly cited John 6, verse 53 where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, Jesus says, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And some of the people following Jesus at that time said, this is hard teaching. Who can listen to this? 
And as a result, we know that, that many of them, uh, we are told, quit following Jesus at that time. And, and I have to agree, it, it's really hard teaching. It's hard enough where there's a lot of disagreement today on the meaning of that passage. You know, we do know that Jesus isn't suggesting, as some do, that merely partaking of the Lord's Supper by itself saves. We know there are many across denominational lines of all types who ceremonially partake of the bread and the cup for decades who've never placed their faith in Christ. You can go through the outward actions without understanding or accepting the meaning. So we know it's not that. Others like John MacArthur insist that there's really little or no connection to communion in this passage. He provides as one evidence, you know, communion hadn't even been instituted yet. I would humbly disagree uh, by pointing out that Jesus spoke many things to his disciples throughout his life that weren't instituted quite yet. Or weren't instituted, uh, fully, fully understood until a point later in time. So there's a lot of disagreement here, so buyer beware. Uh, I'm going to suggest that Jesus' statement there is future prophetic. He's looking out to the future, and, and this is symbolic of what true, genuine Christians ultimately will do in the future, in a symbolic way. Those who have come to a saving faith in Christ, who understand why He came, why He was born, why He suffered and why He died, those who have a saving faith will, by the Holy Spirit, be baptized into the body of Christ, into the body of community of believers, and they will partake of Christ's body and of His blood symbolically through uh, the Lord's Supper. And we do that here the first Sunday of each month, and that's today. Uh, so I'm going to call the men forward so that we as Christians can share together the Lord's Supper.